Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It went viral. It was everywhere. I don't even remember being like, there was a Muslim doing stand-up close to me if they weren't even Arab. I felt insulted. I was like, where is my audience? If not me, who? Why can't I do it? This is an empire. Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. I'm Dana Balutz and welcome back to season three of An Empire. I know it's been a minute since we've dropped an episode of An Empire. And I promise it's for good reason. We've been super busy working on new seasons of Kerning Cultures, which if you haven't listened to, please go do that. But after this, not now. I know a lot of you have missed El Empire, and honestly, I miss it too. So we thought we might as well just come back and kind of say hi again and meet some amazing people that we have lined up for you. So let's get into it. We're kicking off the season with someone who is amazing. An icon, not just in Hollywood, but obviously for Arab Americans worldwide. He is none other than the amazing comedian, Mohammed. Scan my travel document, huge exclamation point comes up. Please seek help from Representative Mama. Excuse me, ma'am, the check engine light just came on and this damn thing is about to explode. I remember the first time I heard Mo, which I think is probably how many of us first heard about Mo. It was a clip of him doing a bit about being at the Border Authority. She's like, sir, this is a not a passport. It's like, I speak English perfectly, ma'am. I don't know why you're talking to me this way. And I thought it was so funny. I think I watched that clip like at least 20 times and people were sharing it on WhatsApp and sharing it by email. And then here we are today, many years later, Mo has his own Netflix show and many others and is building an empire of his own. He's not just a comedian, but he's an actor, a writer and a million other things. It's incredible to have witnessed his ascension from afar. So before we begin, we're going to take a step back and say, if you've been living under a rock and don't know who Mohammed is, he's a Palestinian-American comedian. He spent his early years in Kuwait, but in October 1990, when Mo was nine, like many people, his family was forced to flee during the first Gulf War, and they moved to the U.S. and ended up settling in none other than Houston, Texas. You might recognize Mo from the hit Hulu show Rami. He's also in the DC superhero film Black Adam, and he has several shows on Netflix. 
two of them are comedy specials that I highly recommend, The Vagabond from 2018 and Muhammad's in Texas from 2021. Both so, so funny. And his latest show, a series, is pretty incredible. Would you like to try some chocolate hummus? You say chocolate hummus? You just insulted my grandmother. Lo siento, I did not know that hummus was Mexican. The show is called Mo. It's on Netflix. Just M.O. And it's a comedy drama loosely based on his own life as a Palestinian refugee growing up in Texas. I've never been to Palestine. I don't have citizenship there. I don't have citizenship here. I'm like a refugee free agent. I watched the whole thing in one sitting. I properly binged it. And so last year, I had the immense honor of interviewing Mo for the first time and for an empire. He was in a studio in Houston, and I was in L.A., and my audio sadly sucks, and it's pretty terrible for this recording. And to be honest, my recorder ran out of battery, and I hate making excuses, but, but I hope you can still kind of listen to it and enjoy it. Mo, obviously it's well known that you came to this country as a refugee and for the purposes of this podcast, we know a lot about your background and how you came from Kuwait. But I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about when you arrived to Houston as a refugee, if, if when you think of that moment, if you have a particular memory that comes to mind, um, you're smiling, so I guess you already know the answer. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a lot, but I just remember just being fish out of water here. You know, I just remember that when we first got here, it was like two days before Halloween and I've never heard about what Halloween was. I didn't, nobody even like told me like, oh, Halloween's coming, FYI, people are going to be dressed like psychopaths, you know, like nobody ever said anything. And then like two days later, everybody was just walking around like (laughs) zombies and just looking crazy. And I was just mortified. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And it just, it was a lot. It was a lot to take in, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's like one of the funny things that happened, but when I first got here, it was obviously like a big learning curve. I was, uh, nine years old. I was mad. I was confused. I, you know, had a lot of questions, but, but that was like the big thing when I first got here, <laughs> that was like getting used to, uh, American culture, understanding Western culture and just kind of connecting the dots that way and understanding it. So that was, that was a big, big deal. And it went on for a while. There was a lot of catching up to do. So I made a fool of myself a few times in school. It was just part of the process. There was a point where you stopped going to school, I read, and you kind of became a little bit of a rebel and, and your teacher made a deal with you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I was uh, 14. It was right when my dad passed away. I let Hummel. And I just quit at that point. You know, it was just five years of trying to assimilate at that point and and working really hard to fit in and and making making great friends, though, that I still have to this day. Um, But it was just like the last straw for me. Um, I just I just kind of like quit, just quit everything. I just stopped going to school. I just stopped. I was like a little grown man, you know, I started working when I was like 12 years old and I was like, have you ever seen that movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off? How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? I was living like that the whole time. I was just going to baseball games, sitting at the, you know, first baseline on like great seats. I was selling like fake watches uh, to people in the neighborhood, uh, mostly, you know, 
guys that were kind of like in my similar situation that stopped going to school as well. They were making money. God knows how, but I never asked. I just would just sell all these like sunglasses and watches. I found the wholesale district through my dad before he passed away and, and um, figured you can get like merchandise through there and then you could flip it. And so that's what I was doing. I was like, oh, I'm making good money. I'm going to be a comedian anyway. Like, and I was just going through a lot emotionally. I was just, I just left. I was just living my best life. <laughs> uh, and then my teacher, my English teacher, Mrs. Reed, uh, and Mrs. Broderick in ninth grade, Mrs. Reed in particular, walked up to me and she said, how would your father feel if you don't graduate? Which would be Faliha, man. If you don't graduate, it's like a huge Faliha. Like, it would be horrible. A yeah, big scandal for those that don't speak Arabic. It would be a big, big scandal in my family. I'm the youngest. I'm the only one. Everybody else has graduated, has multiple degrees, and it would be horrible. And she goes, don't you want to be a comedian? I was like, yeah. Because I made it really well known. I would tell everybody, I'm a big comedian. I'm, I'm going to do stand-up comedy, blah, blah, blah. That's what I was going to do. And everybody was just like, yeah, yeah. A lot of pressure on yourself. I just knew. I just knew. You know? <laughs> um, and I just kept saying it. I figured if I kept saying it, then something would happen. And so my teacher, she made a deal with me. She goes, if you can go up in front of the class and for extra credit, if you can recite a monologue from Shakespeare since it's English class, I will let you do stand-up in front of the class and help you make up the assignments so you can pass this class at least. But the deal is you can't skip, and you can't skip any other classes. And if I find out you skip, I'm going to give you the same grade you have now, and I'm going to basically, like, I'm going to fail you. I was like, this is a no-brainer. I just went up in front of the class, and I was like, can I just do this monologue from Hamlet right now? And she was just like, yeah. I was like, does it have to be, like, serious? Can I just make it funny in front of the class? She goes, yeah, it'd be hell to go for it. Like, okay. So I just went up in front of the class to be or not to be. And I just like riffed, you know, playing with it and just playing with the text. And the whole class was like laughing like crazy. And I was hooked. I was like, oh man, Mrs. Reed, can I come in tomorrow and do some stand up? She was like, yeah, you can, absolutely. So I went in front of the class the next day and did some stand up that I riffed on. And, and I would do impressions of like delivery, pizza delivery drivers and, and then the person's reaction to that delivery. And then, and then, oh, and then what I would do is I would, um, I would put on like a super tight sports coat and I would roast the kids in class as Chris Farley. It killed and kids were laughing. And then I went on for a while, a few weeks. And then my teacher took me to the theater arts department, like, hey, man, this kid's been doing like original stand up and all these accents and stuff. I think he belongs in theater. And um, she took me to Lugene Kreisner, who was a theater arts teacher at that time. She goes, okay, sure, come audition for something. And I was too scared. I was like, oh, man, audition, I don't know, it was right. And so I, the next year, I went in and auditioned, and I made it. Mm. Then next thing you know, like six months later, I was, like, getting lead roles, all the lead roles in theater. Um, I was sneaking away and doing stand-up whenever I could. I was too young to get into the clubs. And they were like, well, your mom has to bring you or your parent has to bring you. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to tell my mom to bring me to a comedy club where there's, like, liquor everywhere and all kinds of stuff. Like, my mom would never do that. She All she hears is club. I'm like, my son's just going to be... <laughs> That's what he's going to be. He's gonna be. <laughs> so it didn't work out. So my friend Nick, he was the one that would sneak me to the comedy clubs. 
when I was 17, he took me to the comedy club and he was like, Mo, are you ready? This is the first day of the rest of your life. And he was being corny, but funny, but also serious. But he was right. I have an eight-year-old nephew. He's like my own son. But his name happens to be Osama. Yeah. I'd love to take him out. I'd love to take him out. I said, hey, son, you want to go out to Walmart? I'll buy you a toy. He's excited. We get to Walmart now. He's eight years old. He's running away. I can't call him. So that's how I got into the comedy club scene. I showed up to the Houston Funniest Person competition. I ended up making it through like the first pass. I didn't have any material, so, but it was like amazing that I even made a wild card. And then the next year I was in the finals of that contest. And then I realized, you know, comedians shouldn't be in competition with each other. They should be just outworking each other, you know, just trying to get as many hours as you can on stage. And and that's what I did. And comedians would just snatch me up. Uh, headliners would just be like, hey, man, you want to come open for me? You want to come feature for me? And that lasted about maybe six months before they were like, okay, you need to go do your own thing now. You need to just go away. <laughs> because I was just, I was, you know, I was meant to be a headliner. You know, that's what I am. I want to ask you, Mo, like, you know, a lot of Arab Americans, I think, either choose, especially creatives, like either lean into their Arabness or lean out of it and try and assimilate and try and just be like everyone else and and go that route. You very much have chosen a route where you're leaning into your backgrounds, you're leaning into the fact that you're Arab American. And, and I wonder if that's a conscious decision or you were put in that box or like, how did that, how did you make that decision? Well, I, I was very conscious of it ever since I was a little kid. Um, when I would show up to the comedy clubs and I realized like, I'm the only one here. You know how hard that is? You know how much guts it takes to like travel the South by yourself in a car in these little hole in the walls to have all this like prejudice against you while you're doing that? You know, it was extremely difficult. I don't even remember being like there was a Muslim person around doing stand-up close to me if they weren't even Arab. I was just like, wow. Well, if there's nobody else like me, might as well talk about the stuff that I know and the stuff that, that where I come from. Absolutely, I leaned into it. I think the people that don't lean into it are idiots, personally. I think they're trying to be something that they're not. And it's something like you're denying who you are. Where for me, it was always about just being authentic to myself and authentic to my heritage and where I come from. And I always knew that Hollywood, 
needed to catch up. And whenever they catch up, I'll be here. It's truly into like being authentic to myself was always the, the goal, you know, like what a tragedy would it be that I made it off of pretending I was something that I'm not. Boy, that would really just be gut wrenching. <laughs> How have you influenced the culture? That is like the barometer of success to me. And the fact that people are using what you said on stage to either create a business out of, create TikToks, create videos, um, T-shirts or what have you that tells you like, oh, I'm doing something very powerful here to where it's truly influencing culture. And that's what I'm thinking about. And that's what I that's what I view as like success. But when I released Muhammad in Texas and then like a week later, my mom gets a WhatsApp video of me and they don't even know that's my mom. Crazy. Or if my aunt from our village of like 2000 people forwards her a video of me of the encore. Whoosh, boy, I've done something there. I got chills right now. Like that makes me emotional. It's like, man, the ride has been so heavy and so long. That, man, it just makes me feel so good that I'm able to, like, put my stamp on things. I just wonder how you do it. Like, how do you, like, where did you get, like, first of all, Arabs are really judgy, you know, yeah. like, so judgy, not only in the family unit, but the outer, like, everyone is so overtly judgmental, I think, in our culture as well. Like, it's a great thing. There's a lot of passion, but, mm -hmm. but I just wonder like, how do you still, how do you continue to do that? How do you take a, get in your car and go to the South after nine 11? Are you kidding me? Like that is nuts. Like, where did you get that from? Um, I just really like knew in my core, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, like, and the more people said that I couldn't do it, the more I had to do it. And that's it. And it sucks. And there was tears. There was like exhaustion. There's all of it. But I knew and nobody else did. And you have to be honest with yourself. Like some people get into business and I see it and they're like, they don't belong here. I'm like you stink. Like you're never going to get good. Or you don't really have the purpose to like be a stand up comedian. You just want to be famous. You just want to be popular. <laughs> you just want attention. You don't really love the art form. You're just doing stand-up so you can get an acting job. Where for me, it's like everything that I get outside of stand-up is to do this thing more, which is stand-up. So it's that's where it is. And so it's it just feels really good to um to be able to do these things and start telling these stories and and to get into it. And we're just barely scratching the surface now. Like there is so much to come, inshallah. Like I'm very, very excited to to put it all out there before I'm gone from this place. Do you remember your, like when you felt like, oh, I, I made it? Like, did you, do you remember that breakthrough moment or that? I still that don't feel that, that way. Was? I still don't feel that way. Come on. No, well, I swear <laughs> to God, I don't feel that way at all. When you're on stage, Dave Chappelle, you don't feel like, you know, when you're on Dramy or when you're, you have this amazing special on Netflix. And mm, yeah, I don't have a moment like, I made it, you know, like, I, did, this is what it is, baby, look at me. You know, like, nothing that hasn't come out yet. I don't know if necessarily it will, because it's just about, like, creating more and more and more. But definitely, like, having those moments where I'm, 
it's like Royal Albert Hall and it's you and and John Stewart and Chappelle like doing shows there and you know like four nights or just touring Europe together and you're just like oh man this is the stuff start clapping your hands right now you know from his Netflix special Ragamon he also has a Netflix TV show about to come out called Mo give it up for my boy Mo Amber but please I hope nobody watching this I'm like oh he's full of no, I do appreciate what I'm doing, and I think it's dope. And I think the moment where I felt like, oh, man, like, we really, I'm really, like, we are doing this, is when I pulled up on my motorcycle in full costume where I was filming Black Adam. It was like a cigarette in my mouth. <laughs> I'm hanging out, and just, I just pull up right to set. And it's this huge set, and there's The Rock in full costume. You know, it looks He's the rock. He looks spectacular in that damn thing. It's like the best costume ever. And the makeup artists are like, Mo, you look just so cool. I'm not going to lie. You look, that was the coolest entrance ever. And I looked around. There's like this $300 million, you know, movie. I'm just looking around like, you know what? Yeah, I think we made it. You know what I mean? Like that's, that was, that was probably one of those moments. But I'm always in my body too much, and I'm always like a chip on my shoulder type of dude, and I need to like snap out of that a little bit, I'm sure. And I and I think that's what it is. It's just like having this fight in you all the time, and and it comes from being displaced, and it comes to landing in a place where most people don't understand, and and having to fight through like so many, just grind through so much uh, misunderstanding, and and I think I always feel like. I got to do more. I need to go. I need to don't get comfortable. You know, I think that's like the immigrant mentality. You got to outwork everybody, you know? I mean, what's great about you also is that I think you have, even in, even in your comedy, you have a lot of empathy. Like I remember the Netflix special where at the end you talk about your neighbor in Houston. When the hurricane came through my neighbor, Scott, redneck Scott, this guy is the best. Okay. He's always prepared. So I'm never prepared because I know he's prepared. (laughs) He's always like, yeah, I got generators. Hell yeah, I got generators. Yeah, Mohammed, I got you, baby. You know? When I came through, he hooked me up, bro. I plugged into the side of his house and took that extension cord all the way across that cul-de-sac and plugged my in. And that's what it's about, bro. They're trying to separate us. But the fact is, Mohammeds in Texas get along with redneck Scots all day. We talk about kind of the division in this country and trying to amplify empathy and kindness. Mm. And that's one of my other favorite things about you is that you you are constantly trying to promote empathy. Yeah, you know. absolutely. No, I think it's really important. It's just, um, it's natural. And that part, by the way, in the special was spontaneous. I had it in my head. I didn't know what I was going to do or say in which direction it was going to go. I had some idea, and then I changed it in the middle of the performance. And it was honest, and that's the way it is. And, and I loved it. And they sent me, Scott and his, and his wife sent me a picture of them together, and they watched the special. It was really cute. It was so cute. And they still we're still in touch, you know, and they're always going to be in my life. And, and people need to know, like, a Muhammad could be next door to Redneck Scott and have a phenomenal relationship and maybe have more things in common than you think. Hopefully some of this stuff that, that some of this art that you could put out that can influence culture in a way and also just make you laugh and make you think in the best way possible. That's what it's about to me. 
last question, Mo, is anything else that you want to say that I haven't asked you? And also, like, what do you need from us as the Arabs in diaspora, your Arab community, your your support? You know, it's like support. It's like share with everybody. Tell everybody like, you know, this is all the work. This is all for you. This is literally all for you and not only for you, but for your kids, 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 you know, like this is meant to, to, to open up doors for all of them and, and, and create some kind of stories for them that they can relate to and, and be a part of. And, and that's what I want. So you got to support that. You have to support that in a really big way and you got to push it because if I don't have that, then what's the point? Mo did not have to take time out of his very busy schedule right before the show aired. And so I know that his press schedule was packed. He did not have to take time to drive to a studio in Houston and talk to our relatively small show. He talks about supporting Arab Americans and the diaspora. And this was just another example of how he does that in very practical terms. And I'd love if we can all show him support by watching the show, Mo. And catch Mo anytime he's in your city. Support him. Post about him. He's one of the good ones. This episode was produced by Finbar Anderson and Alex Atak with amazing additional support from Ahmad Ashwood. It was edited by Alex Atak and Ahmad Ashwood with research and fact-checking by Dina Sabri. Sound design and mixing was by Munzil Hashim. A very special thanks to Majd Bani Oudeh for connecting us to Mohammed and Quincy at Sacred Stone Media in Houston for his help recording this interview. No thanks goes to me for my poor recording skills. And one last thing, this season of El Empire, we're releasing the full uncut video interviews with our amazing guests, including Mo. All you need to do is head to YouTube and search El Empire or follow us on our socials at Kerning Cultures. We'll be back next week. Take care. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.